When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, welcome to Money Talks, The Economist's weekly finance and economics podcast. I'm Simon Long, an editor at the paper. And coming up this week, a new approach to economics. I'm not sure that an economics undergrad, even equipped with this wonderful new textbook, would be able to have predicted the financial crisis. But it does mark a departure from old ways of teaching. And we have a special item on how Latin music is making a comeback. We've seen some growth in the past two years in the industry as a whole, and Latin has outpaced all other genres. And we welcome Colombian reggaeton master Jay Balvin to the podcast with a bit of exclusive news. You know, it's a sexy sound. I think we're creating a new wave worldwide that really people just want to get to know more about. But you'll have to wait and listen for the scoop. First, we go to China, where a new generation of entrepreneurs is emerging. The country's 100-plus unicorns, that's startups with a value of a billion dollars or more, are worth over 400 billion That surpasses the value of all American unicorns put together. But why? What's happening to encourage such a huge growth spurt? That's something I want to discuss with Vijay Vaitiswaran, who's just wound up five years as The Economist's China business editor and joins me from Hong Kong. Hello, Vijay. Hello there. So what what is it, Vijay? How how can it produce this surge of new companies? There's uh, three big reasons why, and they have to do with the market itself. The first is scale. China is a place you can scale very quickly, more than, for example, in Europe with its balkanized markets and multiple languages. It's a relatively homogeneous market with excellent infrastructure, and that's uh, very useful for new companies. Another reason is that Chinese love to consume, and they're quite adventuresome in how they try new products, and that's something that helps new companies. Finally, the state sector is so incompetent and hostile towards consumers that a range of services companies are able to offer fantastic uh, leapfrogging products and services that Chinese are eagerly gobbling up. I suppose there are three Chinese internet firms that many of our listeners will have heard of. There's Baidu, China's Google, there's Alibaba, China's Amazon, and there's Tencent, China's Twitter, Facebook. But you're talking about something far broader than that. That's right. Those were the first wave of Chinese innovators, and they played a role in helping the second wave. Many of the younger companies have some form of investment from these uh, BAT giants, they call them in China. But what our briefing this week identifies is really a a new generation of younger entrepreneurs, and their characteristics are are different from those original companies. These younger companies are typically micro-multinationals. They're born global. 
with aspirations to sell into foreign markets, but often with talent. Perhaps a founder or the uh, technical team has worked in Silicon Valley or has some other connection to markets abroad. So they're very connected to global trends. I suppose this is quite surprising, really, for people who still look on China as somewhere that is technologically always playing catch-up and is where companies thrive by keeping out the competition. It's no longer like that. There's still that side of China. I could go on Taobao and probably get you a $20 pair of Manolo Blahnik shoes right now. But at the same time, that is becoming a much less important part of the Chinese economy. Where we see the, the great dynamism is not in copycat China or in the state sector. This dynamic, entrepreneurial, technology-driven sector, I think, is really where you see the greatest dynamism and original business models, even cutting-edge technologies, if we look to areas like artificial intelligence, for example. And do you think, really think they might be coming to us in, in the West sometime soon? I, we are already experiencing it in a number of countries. If you look at one of the most successful of these big unicorns, DD, which is a ride-hailing company that, by being a better company, chased away Uber from China. They were able to defeat Uber. They offer a wider range of services. Uh, you can hail a minibus if you want to commute to work. You can, uh, If you have too much to drink at a party, they'll send a chap on a bicycle to drive you in your own car home and so on. So it's a very uh, interesting, inventive company that is uh, already invested in multiple parts of the world, in America's Lyft, which is a rival to Uber, in Grab in Southeast Asia, in India, and so on. And they're expanding very aggressively. While we're on ride hailing, I understand there's a Chinese company working on a flying car. That's a fantasy, isn't it? You never know. There is a Chinese company that has uh, dirigibles. It has invested in a New Zealand company called Martin Jetpack, Canada's solar ship, which can deliver goods in remote areas that don't have runways. And yes, they are indeed working on what could be called a flying car. So we never know what Chinese entrepreneurship will come up with. I might not be the first one to take a ride in such a airship, but uh, I wouldn't put it past China's entrepreneurs. So it'll have to be me who gets off to a flying start then. Thanks very much, Vijay. It's a pleasure, Simon. Thank you. Now to economics. A decade ago, the financial crisis dented a lot of people's faith in economics as a discipline and in the way it's taught. The profession has, of course, responded. One outcome is a new textbook that's just been published as part of a project known as CORE. To discuss this, I'm joined by the economist Samir Keynes. Uh, Samaya, I suppose the biggest criticism that was launched against economics a decade ago was that it just didn't see the crisis coming. Do these new initiatives help solve that problem? I'm not sure that an economics undergrad, even equipped with this wonderful new textbook, would be able to have predicted the financial crisis. But it does mark a departure from old ways of teaching. So just thinking back to my university days, there were these very expensive textbooks that essentially kind of gave you lots of models. You were taught essentially how to plug through these models. And one of the critiques is that they were tested on their ability to regurgitate those in exams. And what this new curriculum tries to do is it tries to get students to ask the right questions. It tries to get them to think critically about when certain models apply. Um, it doesn't just give you the formula. So in a sense, is it undermining the whole idea of economics as, as offering a, a fundamental truth. It's always something that is going to be a matter of opinion. 
So one of the huge debates that came out of this was over what economics should be. And and so some of the critics said what you should do is is teach these different schools of thought. So they said you need to teach Marxist economics alongside uh, neoclassical economics and feminist economics and all these different strands. And then other people said, no, that's not, that's not the problem. Good economics is open to different ways of thinking. And when those different ways of thinking are the best to solve a particular problem, then you should be open to those and, and be able to incorporate them. So ultimately, it did boil down to this very big question of what is economics? And I think the initiative that's really got furthest along is the one that does try to make the mainstream more accessible and more open to other ways of thinking. And it's presumably even further away before people educated in this new approach to economics start becoming policymakers and enjoying positions of influence. I think you've hit the nail on the head of why this is such an important issue. The people studying these undergraduate economics courses are going to go on to occupy positions of power. There have been lots and lots of lovely things said about this new course in it, and it is better than the boring old textbooks. You know, you can click on graphs and there are interactive exercises and it's great, but it's only a fairly introductory text. We're not going to be producing stellar undergraduates as a result of this one course is much more of an evolutionary process. What about the next economist economics correspondent? Has it taught you anything you didn't know? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy in my current position as the economics correspondent. I'll fend off competition. Uh, it was a fairly introductory text, so I won't pretend that it completely revolutionised the way, the way I think. It did make me much more hopeful about future economics undergraduates and and the education that they might be getting and reminded me the thing that I really feel like I've learned most since starting The Economist, that good economics is about asking the right questions, not necessarily giving the definitive answer of how everything definitely works. Samir Keynes, whose job, as far as I know, is under no threat whatsoever. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And finally, we turn to Latin music in a particular genre known as reggaeton. South America has some of the biggest music streaming markets in the world. Brazil and Mexico are both among Spotify's top four markets. This has led to so-called overspill of Latin music into the mainstream, with tracks reaching the global charts. Tracks like this one. The Puerto Rican duo, Luis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee, with their song Despacito. It's the most streamed song ever at six billion times. It was then remixed and popularized further by pop star Justin Bieber. This was then followed by Mi Gente, by Colombian reggaeton master J Balvin, which has spent weeks at the top of the Spotify charts. And today, we welcome Jay Balvin himself. Jay, how would you describe reggaeton? Well, you know, I describe reggaeton as, you know, it's a sexy sound. It just makes you happy. It just, you know, makes you want to move, even though you don't understand what we're saying. I think we're creating a new wave worldwide that really people just want to get to know more about. 
I think lots of people who've heard me, Henty, would, would agree with your description, Jay. I'm joined here in the studio by my colleague, uh, Sarah Maslin uh, from The Economist, who's normally based in Latin America. Sarah, can you give us an idea about how much Latin music as a genre has, has grown in recent years? What's happening with Latin right now is really exciting. Um, the industry as a whole, of course, has really suffered in the past decade or so uh, with the decline of, of album sales and shift over to, to digital and streaming. But we've seen some growth in the past two years in the industry as a whole, and Latin has outpaced all other genres. And that was really driven by a, a growth in streaming. When I say streaming, I mean Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, all of these ways that consumers are finding to access music on the go. Um, and in Latin America, a lot, of the, a lot of the time on smartphones. How much of a role has streaming played in, in your success recently? Well, you know, it has a lot in the way that, you know, when people like something, they just share it. And, you know, as I said in my song, Mi Gente, and also Mi Gente with Willie William, I said the world is bigger, but I got it in my hand. It's because, you know, you got the access to everything through your cell phone. And that's when the streamings really, really, really count because anybody can have my song and share it with everybody. And I think it's been like my right hand right now. Are you making a lot of money out of it? Because one of the complications, <laughs> the, the complaints that Spotify has, has received, isn't it, is that it's not generous enough in how much money the artists actually get. Well, you know, I'm, I'm the type of artist that don't like to talk about money. But, you know, I think, you know, through the process, you know, labels... Spotify, you know, they got to start working for us because at the end of the day, it's the music that we're doing that make those platforms work. Sorry to ask an artist about money, but we are the economist. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I know. You know but let, like, me ask you about the mu- let me ask you about the music. I, How has it changed in recent years? What's the big change in Latin music that's made it so globally successful? It's been a big change, you know, but it's been a process. You know, it's not that it just happened like six months ago or, you know, it's been 10 years or 15 years since we started this movement. And the beautiful thing about this is like we're going to keep creating more great music that, you know, one day we're going to be even like, you know, I love English music, but, you know, Spanish right now is showing that and numbers don't lie. As you say, you know, we're the, this is the economy. So, you know, this is growing up. As a consumer and reporter, Sarah, do you have anything to add to what Jay has said about how the music is changing? Well, something that's been really exciting for me is to hear my my friends in the United States and Europe listening to Latin music in Spanish. It used to be that artists like Enrique Iglesias or Ricky Martin or Shakira would produce versions of their songs or their albums in English. But now that doesn't seem to be necessary anymore. Uh, Mi gente is almost entirely in Spanish, and a lot of the other Latin hits are too. And so what about the streaming platforms, not just Spotify, but Apple Music and all the others? How have they changed the industry? Well, streaming has really been a a globalizing and a democratizing force in many ways. It's given people all over the world access to all kinds of music. It has given a way for for low-name artists to get their music out there at lower cost. At the same time, the real question now is whether this is going to translate into the kinds of revenues that we were seeing before with with physical albums. And I've been told that, you know, it's still big name artists that are making most of the money, big name artists like J Balvin. Um, But, you know, what artists are hoping is that 
the kind of publicity you get from from having tons of streams and hits on Spotify will translate into advertising, into performances, and into all of the other things that make up an artistic career. And Jay, what, what are your plans for the next few months? What can we look forward to? Well, I think I'm about to, you know, to drop a, a remix, an official remix of Mi Gente. You're gonna, you guys are going to go crazy when you see who's going to be in the remix. I'm going to show the world that our movement is so strong that that's, you know, how we're going to get. Jay Balvin, thank you very much for joining us. And, and Sarah Maslin, thanks for coming to the studio as well. Muchísimas gracias, Jay. No, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope it's going to be, we're going to have a next interview telling about the remix. Well, <laughs> well, well I, I, hope, I hope the Economist Money Talks podcast will be the place where the remix gets its first airing. <laughs> believe me, believe me, believe me that I'm telling you, I think you're the first people that I say about the remix. And uh, trust me, you got to check those numbers when the remix drop off. And if you have any thoughts on who Jay Balvin's new partner will be, do let us know. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio, and you can also reach us via emails to radio at economist.com. Well, that's it for this week's Money Talks. Don't forget to take a moment to rate us on iTunes. I'm Simon Long. Thanks very much for listening. In London, this is The Economist. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.